question is, are you ready? This is The Drive with Josh Graham on Sports Hub Triad. It is a Monday drive. And this weekend was a rough one for yours truly. As if having to pound a shot of tequila at Stumble Stillskins in downtown Greensboro wasn't enough. And I do appreciate a couple of our listeners, Mike and Trey, who volunteered to do the shot with me. Bets went 2-4-1 and one this weekend. We're now right at 500 for the season. Not very proud of that. So let's get all the shaming out of the way first. I know Robert has something cooked up for me, so let's knock that out. I like North Carolina to win, but the more time I've spent thinking about it the last couple of days, I've completely flipped on this. Not only do I like Wake Forest to win this game, I like them to handle the Tar Heels and win it by two scores. Carolina snaps it one more time. So the perfect season is out the window for Wake Forest. They've never been 8-0. They still have not been 9-0, and it won't happen this year. The Panthers' defense. That's why I like Carolina to win this game. I think the Carolina defense, just like we saw on Sunday against Atlanta, they're going to steal this game. Donald with the key. Rolling. Throwing it. Overthrown and it's intercepted. Picked off and look out. This is Justin Bethel. Touchdown, New England. I'm going to chug this whole Bloody Mary. You're going to chug a Bloody Mary? Anything on the Panthers? Ah, f*** them. Didn't see that last piece coming. Robert's analysis of the Carolina Panthers. Ah, bleep them. That actually would have been pretty good analysis of what Sam Darnold said every single time Carolina marched into scoring territory. Should I throw this ball up for grabs? Ah, bleep them. We'll get to the Panthers piece of this in a second. But let's start with the game in Chapel Hill. I am really concerned today that the fourth quarter collapse we all saw might torpedo Wake Forest's magical season moving forward. They poured so much into that game. You know these big four games matter so much to Wake Forest. That's why they wanted to schedule North Carolina out of conference. They scored 55 in it and lost. Sam Hartman accounted for seven touchdowns. That's a Wake Forest record. Also a record for touchdowns accounted for allowed by North Carolina in their history. It feels like this could be shades of 2019. I hope I'm wrong on that. But let's not forget, Wake Forest started 7-1. and one. Then they were ranked in the first playoff. They went to Virginia Tech, lost that game. And not only did they lose, they lost key players in the process. Justin Sternad injured for the remainder of the season. I think Sage Surratt got banged up in that game too. This is the first real adversity Wake Forest has dealt with this year. And none of us know how they're going to respond from it. I hope they respond well. But I do not like the fact the week after you emptied out the bucket and dropped 55 in a game and lost and faced your first real adversity of the season... You got your most important game of the year with NC State coming into your building. It's a must-win game 
if you plan to win the Atlantic and go to the ACC championship. So it's something I wanted to bring up to Dave Clawson after the game. I asked him, how do you convince your guys after the gut-wrenching loss that Saturday was, everything's still on the table for your team? I don't have to convince them. They know that. I mean, we're still 5-0 and in the ACC, and in my mind, we have a championship game next Saturday. So I don't have to convince them. They know that. Now, bouncing back from a loss and the adversity and, and not playing well on defense again today, you know, those are the, the real problems we got to fix. I don't have to convince You don't have to convince them that Saturday is a big deal, but the injuries going to be a primary storyline this week just like when Sternad got hurt and it really hurt that Wake Forest defense the final month a couple years ago they lost Christian Beal Smith in the second half they lost a couple of corners you can't ever have too many of those when you're facing Devin Leary, Emeka Amezi, Thayer Thomas and this NC State offense it's not a good week to be losing these guys and based on what I've been told preliminary information from the stadium at Keenan, it doesn't look good for all three of those guys this week. We'll learn more tomorrow when Dave Clawson beats with the media, but it doesn't look good from an injury perspective with those three. Wake Forest, they've been pretty fortunate in the injury department. Sure, you lost a couple of guys in the offseason, Javante Nash and Donovan Green at wide receiver, but during the regular season, by and large, Wake has not really been dealt with the season-ending devastating injury to a key starter at any point this year. There was the stretch where you were without Greer for a month and change, but he came back, and he's playing for the Demon Deacons. So these three guys that were key rotational players, particularly a starter in Christian Beal-Smith, that's a massive blow if he can't go against NC State on Saturday. It hurts you, and it hurts your depth. It'll trickle down to special teams, which is so important to Wake Forest. And, of course, defensively, that was a big part of the reason North Carolina staged the comeback that they did. Plus, let's not overlook Clemson. Clemson's still lingering. Saturday, all around was a bad day for Wake Forest. Not only was it the same script as last year with North Carolina coming back and Wake seeing its playoff chances die and, in turn, the ACC seeing its playoff chances die as well. Florida State lost 20 to 25 players due to the flu, not COVID, the flu. Saturday against NC State, meaning the Wolfpack had a great shot to win and they won that game convincingly. Clemson held on to win 30 to 24 at Louisville. That is the second consecutive week that Clemson has scored 30 points when their offense was completely anemic for the first month and a half of the season. They just announced the kickoff time for Wake Forest Clemson, not this weekend, but next weekend. It's a noon kick. So that's kind of a good break for Wake Forest, that you don't have to face the Tigers at night at Death Valley. But Clemson, still lingering, still in contention, still the six or seven time consecutive champs of the Atlantic Division and the ACC altogether. I'm concerned that this collapse might ruin Wake Forest's magical season. I hope I'm wrong on that, but that's the concern I have. On Twitter at WSJS Sports, if you want in, 336-777-1600 is the phone number. 
Let's start with Ed. Ed, let's make it a good phone call from Winston-Salem. Getting the week started, you're our first caller of the week. What do you got on the Deacons and the Tar Heels? I thought it was a very uh, entertaining game, uh, Josh. I thought, I thought Wake Forest played well enough to win, and in my opinion, they were the better team. They just didn't have enough at the end of the ball game to uh, pull it out. I don't know about you, but I thought it was a very uh, some chippy play on both sides of the uh, Field. Uh, both of these teams had over 11 penalties and, and over 100 yards. And I noticed, uh, I, I don't know if anything was said there or you overheard anything or not, but like I was telling you when I called here a couple uh, weeks ago, this is the fourth or fifth consecutive game that North Carolina <laughs> has had 10 or better penalties and over 100 yards. And I don't know what they need to do to clean it up, but, uh, you know, that's really cost them in the long run. But I, yeah. I, I still, I agree with you. I still think the. Demon Deacons are going to win the Atlantic Division and go on and get a really good bowl game. I appreciate the call, Ed. I, Thank you. I am more concerned now about Wake Forest's Atlantic chances after watching them on Saturday. But at some point in the season, we talked about this on Friday, you kind of are who you are. And North Carolina, to your point, when they committed 11 penalties or so on Saturday, Nobody was surprised by it because that's who North Carolina has been. Now, when Wake Forest does that, it's a little bit more surprising. And North Carolina probably should have been called for a couple more penalties when you consider you watch the replay. I rewatched it about a dozen or so times. That key interception with Wake Forest up a touchdown that Hartman had, he was just throwing it up there. He thought he had a free play. And he was right to think so. Guy jumped offside on that fourth down at the end. Never had a chance to ask Sam about it. Clawson didn't really give me a clear answer on that specific one, the last offensive play for the Deeks, but or I guess the last one when the score was 51-48 to before Ty Chandler had that touchdown. He seemed to throw it up for grabs again, thinking that North Carolina jumped off sides. And I thought Sam Hartman was right for that again. Now, it's just bad luck. Officiating wasn't great on both sides, in my opinion. I don't think they should have thrown... Jeremiah Gimmel out of the game. That's such an important player for the Tar Heels on defense. That was a targeting call. But it just comes to show you, it's really hard to win every single week. You're going to get unlucky eventually. And that's what happened with Wake Forest. They caught some bad breaks, and that lead dissipates very quickly. Brian Geisiger is going to join us in 20 minutes. Getting to the Panthers. In real time, we are watching the end of Sam Darnold's career as a starter. This is not like Teddy Bridgewater last year. It's much worse. Yesterday, Robert, was Sam Darnold's second three-interception game as a Panther. He's played nine games. He now has 11 interceptions in those nine games. Teddy, meanwhile, last year with Carolina, threw 11 picks the entire season and never threw three in a game. The big difference, see... When Carolina shipped off Teddy, they got a little bit of something in return. Somebody was willing to pick up the contract and give Carolina a late-round draft pick for Teddy. That was Denver. And we saw what Denver saw in Teddy yesterday when they rolled the Dallas Cowboys the way they did down there in Big D. Who's going to want to take Sam Darnold off Carolina's hands and the $18 million they owe him picking up the fifth-year option like they did? Or is Carolina just going to release him and suffer the dead cap hit that comes along with that? That is a major difference between the two. 
public comments yesterday tell you everything you need to know. This was Matt Rule after the game talking about Sam's performance. I know Sam prepared hard. I thought, you know, he went out there. I thought, I thought he showed toughness. He gritted to the end, so I don't want to lay anything at his feet. But you know, we, we can't have a quarterback throwing the ball up in the air. He knows that. I know that. Um, so whether we have to get with the coaches for guys, the coaching, is it him? What, what is it? We just we can't, we can't keep doing this. No, they can't. Matt Rule today was asked three times whether or not, make it four, Sam would be the starting, starter moving forward. Rule said, we'll wait to see whether or not Sam can play with his right shoulder. He wanted to even say, if he's healthy, he'd be the starter. Now, when you put that side-by-side with another sideline tirade by Robbie Anderson telling Darnold to, quote, tighten up, and Hassan Reddick at the beginning of his media availability after the game saying, I do not want to be asked any questions about the offense. I only want to talk about the defense. It's not good in Charlotte right now. Darnold, he might continue to start, but that's more a product of who P.J. Walker is versus who Sam Darnold isn't. That gets at depth. I will defend, and I defended then and still will today, Carolina moving off of Teddy Bridgewater and bringing in Darnold. It was a roll of the dice. He's a younger quarterback, a higher draft pick, was in a bad situation in New York. You felt like you can maybe rekindle things with him, and it looked good through the first three games. But let's not forget, Darnold was not the first option for Carolina. Scott Fitterer and Matt Rule, they offered a more lucrative package than the L.A. Rams did to try and bring in Matthew Stafford. But Detroit asked Matthew where you would prefer to go. They wanted to do right by a player who mired away his career a dozen years or so in Detroit, and Stafford said he'd rather go to L.A. So they turned down a more lucrative offer from Charlotte to send him to the L.A. Rams. The Deshaun Watson situation. Carolina was going to go all in with that. Then they couldn't for the most obvious reasons out there. So Darnold was plan C. But that does not defend Carolina in any way for not taking a quarterback at number eight. Mac Jones, it was a sketchy play yesterday where he grabbed Brian Burns' leg and rolled over it a bit. But that's a quarterback I'd rather have leading this team than Sam Darnold. When you talk about rookie contract for four, maybe five years, you know you have a chance to upgrade there, and you decide to go defense. That's what's going to age terribly. The fact that they didn't go with Mac or Justin Fields at number eight. And Carolina has no excuse. You can't say they didn't get a good read on Mac or didn't have a good enough evaluation. They had Mac Jones at the Senior Bowl, and they decided they'd rather go with a corner in that spot. Denzel and Ridgeway, you're up. Denzel, what do you got on the Panthers? Hey, uh, Josh, remember we were talking last year uh, before the draft, and you and I agreed the Panthers need to fix their offensive line. you got to protect the fans' backside, his blind side. they got nothing for that. He's got no weapons to throw to. I really don't care who you get back there. You can put Tom Brady back there, and he gets hit four or five times. Hey, he's shell-shocked, and uh, – I mean, look how good Teddy Bridgewater's doing for Denver now. Yeah, and here's the problem I have as well with you going in on Teddy and Sam Darnold. I appreciate the call, by the way, Denzel. You, If you pick up a rookie quarterback, well, you can fix the offensive line as you go. It doesn't have to be all here right now. Sam Darnold, you have to figure out whether or not you pay the guy in the best-case scenario a year from now. And Teddy, he's 
getting into those prime years, or maybe he's on the latter end of his prime. So Carolina is sending the message that they're trying to make the playoffs now, while the offensive line would tell you differently. I'll defend Matt, Scott Fitterer and Matt Rule again. It seemed like they wanted to take Panay Sewell at number eight, but Sewell was taken at number seven. They should have gone quarterback in that spot. So even if the offensive line wasn't what it needed to be, you didn't have to throw the rookie out immediately because you had already acquired Darnold at that point. And you also, because he's on a rookie contract, would have time to, and you can afford to bring in assets moving forward, maybe spend some draft picks of the future, knowing that you've already figured out who your franchise quarterback is going to be moving forward. There is no defending, not going quarterback at number eight, in my opinion. Coming up, why Saturday might have been a sign of what's to come for the Tar Heels for the rest of this month. Keep it here on a Monday Drive. Weird. weird. A little weird. I know it's weird. Just go with it. This is The Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. The ACC Men's Basketball ACC Sports Journals look really good. The fall preview edition. Folks were picking it up yesterday at Stumble Stillskins in downtown Greensboro. Brian Geisiger now with us. A lot of his analysis you can find in that magazine. We encourage you to pick them up when you get the opportunity to do so. But I want to talk about some of the exhibitions we watched on Friday. I was at Wake Forest, Winston-Salem State. We'll get into that in about 15 minutes. So let's start with BG here talking about the Tar Heels taking care of business against Elizabeth City State Friday night. To me, BG, my takeaway was this post looks improved for the Tar Heels. It was an impressive recruiting job by Hubert Davis considering how ominous things were when he took the job in April Garrison Brooks wanted to go get reunited with his dad at Mississippi State, and Walker Kessler also jumped to the SEC to Auburn, and Dayron Sharp to the draft. Hubert's first task was trying to at least maintain the post, and there's a chance he might have improved it when you see some of the guys jumping in who are experienced hands. Dawson Garcia, really good, and Armando Baycott, per usual, was very good with 16 points of the game. And Brady Manick, he looked like the guy we thought he would be because we'd seen him play for a handful of years at Oklahoma. It looks like they might have improved the post. Was that your takeaway as well on Friday? Well, I don't know if they've, they've necessarily like improved like the overall talent level. Does that, does that make any sense? Like You lose a guy like Sharp, who's a first-round pick, and Walker Kessler is one of the best, like you know, returning prospects in college basketball, and could be a draft pick. Um, you know, that when the 2022 cycle comes up, we'll see how things go with him at Auburn this year. But just given his mobility and size, I mean, he's certainly an, an intriguing talent. Um, Brooks was probably overinflated in terms of his overall, you know, sort of like net impact by just like the UNC media machine, but. He was also a very solid, very good, very experienced two-way college player that did a lot of little things well. Um, but so you bring a guy like Baycott back, who maybe doesn't have as much sort of like, a, you know, NBA upside as someone like Walker Kessler, but he might be a more productive player, right? Just for the college game, like he's such a good interior 
finisher. And he's going to have probably more space than he's ever had before in his entire life, going back to, like, you know, youth basketball with with what the pieces that UNC has put around him this season. And he made such a jump as a paint finisher last year, jumping up from, like, you know, whatever, the, the high 40s in terms of field goal percentage to above 60% last year. And I said this when they added both Brady Manick early in the transfer process, but you know, you're adding one of the best shooters in college basketball to this roster, and he happens to be, you know, six foot ten or whatever, and all the great stuff that can do for your offense to shot in the arm uh, in terms of the spacing, let alone like, you know, games that he gets hot and makes a couple of shots like he did um, against Elizabeth City. And then you add a guy like Garcia really late in the cycle, like almost three full months after you add Manic, you get Garcia who just got done testing the draft waters, and he's like one of the best players oh, up there with Walker Kessler in terms of like talent that moved in the transfer portal this offseason. I think he enters the ACC as one of the top you know, 10 to 12 guys in the league in terms of talent, like a, a post that can really kind of do a little bit of everything. And despite his size, is nimble and can get out and guard you know, smaller players on the perimeter, which allows you to do a bunch of different stuff defensively if you want to. So... Um, no surprise that like they were lucky enough to retain Armando Baycott, retain Caleb Love, retain Kerwin Walton, and then also you know you bring back R.J. Davis and Linky Black, and then you go out and get some big time players uh, the transfer portal this summer and Garcia and Manic, and yeah, that's why I like UNC as one of you know sort of like very safely one of the top five teams in the league this year coming into it, and a team that could potentially you know, be a top two or three teams, depending on, you know, how, how conference records shake out. Armando. I still have them sixth in the ACC, but I could see them being fifth, fourth around that general area. I think there's a little, I don't think there's a wide gap Be after you get past the first couple teams in this league. Brian Geisiger's on Twitter at bguys underscore bird. It's time for us to play out precise to Geis. Brian Geisinger is a basketball genius. Josh Graham, uh, is not. I'm smart, you're dumb. I'm big, you're little. I'm right, you're wrong. Listen as Brian launches half-court shots and Josh, well, double dribbles all over himself. And there's nothing you can do about it. Get off the bench and try to out-precise the Geis. All right, all right. After a couple weeks in, I wanted to take a look in at the rookies, and it has nothing to do with uh, one Toronto Raptors rookie, probably leading rookie votes. But that's not, neither here nor there. I want to start with rookies, and guess where we just happen to be starting with? It's Scotty Barnes, baby! <laughs> God, this dude is... Is he at 20 points per game? Is he I, around there? Right I now? think he's like 18 and 10 or 18 and 12 or something like that. But I'm glad you asked because he does lead all rookies in points and rebounding. Uh, so there is a chance that he could make a push for a Rookie of the Year. And there is some precedent in that, as Toronto has two former Rookie of the Years in Vince Carter and Damon Stoudemire. And a little fun fact for you, there are only two teams in the NBA who have never had a Rookie of the Year player, and that is the Miami Heat and the Denver Nuggets. Uh, they have oh. never had one. Uh, so just a little nugget you guys can take home with you. Uh, Stoudemire also holds the record for the most points by a rookie Raptor with 1,331. How many more points does Scotty need to break that record? So one point more than 1,331. How many points does he need to do that? Gotcha. Oh, boy. Gotcha. And I, I, I think a couple years ago, I want to say it was the year that Cat, uh, Cat, uh, Carlin City Townsville, rookie, rookie of the year, 
Uh, that was uh, Nikolai Jokic's rookie season as well, and he finished like I think third in, in rookie of the year voting. Denver was close was close that year to to getting one. And I saw but, Kendrick uh, Nunn got second place uh, the year he was a rookie. That's right. That was was recently. Um, that was probably just two years ago, two three years ago. Um, all right. So for Scotty, how many points does Barnes need to break? Uh, Stoudemire, who by the way is assistant coach now with the uh, the Boston Celtics rookie record. Um, I will say 1,000 points. I'm going to go 1,120. It is 1,182. So Josh leaps out to an early jump. Yeah! Yeah! Off to a 1-0 start. I already know it's going to happen. If if BG loses, he's going to say, I I can't see Josh face-to-face today. I'm on the phone. So there might be some chicanery going on. Yeah, I already know. I would believe it because you didn't I mean, say, I wrote down. You said, I'm going to go yeah. with 11. But I had it written oh, down. See, it's you wrote right it down in. after you won. Yeah, I'm sure. That looks like 800 or something. I don't know. We we might need some background <laughs> research on this since Geis isn't in studio I was off of BG's guest by 100. Yeah, it's okay. It's cool. We got we got best of best three here, baby. Here we go with the second one. Uh, Taking one spot higher than Scotty Barnes is Evan Mobley, who's proven himself to be an elite rim protector, but also a scoring threat as he's shooting over fifty two percent from the field. Uh, And a a stat I didn't even know was a thing until guys started telling me about it. The stocks he averages two point three stocks a game, which is steals and blocks, uh, and is tied for fourteenth in the lead with blocks. Uh, how many more blocks would he need to break Manute Bowles' rookie record of 397 in a season? <laughs> how many blocks does he need? Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, by this the way, is, this Mobley, is gonna... Mobley's been incredible, too. I mean, he and Barnes have been just insanely good as rookies. And, like, yeah, you know, you don't want to get ahead of yourself. But, man, you know, is Mobley – like, he – People are comparing him to AD, but he already passes better than Anthony Davis does. Like, I don't know, man. This might be like, you know, modern day Garnett. You know, we'll see. We got a ways to go, obviously, but holy smokes, he looks good. Um, I will say 380. I got 350 written down. That's ridiculous. Robert's laughing. Uh, okay. Why is he laughing? Uh, Manute Bowl had 397 in his rookie year. Uh, Evan Mobley has 14 so far, so that means he needs 383 more. Oh my god, that's ridiculous! Man. <laughs> Let's go. I liked my chances there. <sighs> Those are the two, though. I when I hear people talking about rookie of the year stuff, we talked about on Friday how special of a class this looks like. Just how six of the top eight picks look like hits, or I think they're in top four of the uh, on their team in scoring. And Cade Cunningham obviously has had tough situations, and we haven't really seen a lot out of uh, Kaminga from Golden State. Those seem like the two guys that are front runners right now for the conversation. Uh, you're talking about Mobley and Scotty Barnes. So I'm interested who's the third guy you're pulling. Yeah, you already brought him up. It's Cade Cunningham. You know, I had to throw a bad one in there, and bad might be a little understatement as he's having a rough start to the year. He's shooting 23% from the floor, and the biggest oof I could provide you, just like oof, a 14% from three. Uh, The silver lining is he's number one in rookies and free throw percentage at 92% by uh, rookies that have taken at least 10 free throws. So that's a good thing, but I I don't want to know any about that. I just want to know how many shots Cade Cunningham has missed this year. (laughs) uh, He he, he looked... um... 
They played Brooklyn a couple nights ago, and uh, he did not shoot well, particularly well in that game. But, like, man, the Pistons finally, like, kind of gave him the keys to the offense. And uh, I don't know, Cade, Cade actually looked pretty good. I mean, again, he shot poorly, and he turned it over a bunch in that game. But, like, I'm not too worried about, about Cade. And even uh, Jalen Suggs is, like, shooting 30% from the field at this point uh, this season, too. Um, this field goal attempt for Cade, I will say 45. I've got 59 written down shots that he's missed. Another little nugget for you here. He's taken 28 threes this year, and he has only made four for that oh. low percentage. Uh-oh. So oh, they're going to need a little more from him going forward before the Ben Simmons stuff starts. But you guys were both pretty close, but 43 missed shots oh, this year. Let's go. No. Cade. The only good thing is there's a lot of time for him to figure this out. That's the good thing about numbers is they don't lie. So if he puts together a couple yeah. good shooting performances, it'll match out on the stat sheet. Ball doesn't lie either. That's what I hear. No. BG! Yeah. College basketball season officially starts within the next 24 hours. Get excited, my friend. Thanks for spending the time with us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thrilled. Everyone uh, enjoy the games. And, um, yeah, it should be, should be fun. It's, it's, like, it's kind of crazy that College Hoops is back, but um, it's here. And um, I'm I'm glad I just finished up a move, and so I got, I got this done just in time of the, for the start of college hoops, and that's not a coincidence. Um, Love yeah, it, very excited. On Twitter at bguys underscore bird. Thanks for the time, buddy. We'll talk next week. Yep, sounds good. There he goes, Brian Geisiger, joining us from accsports.com, and sitting in the league pass lair, watching tons of NBA basketball. Probably short on sleep, watching. The Hornets play at the Clippers last night and Charlotte being in action later tonight against the LeBron-less Los Angeles Lakers. As I mentioned, I was out at Wake Forest exhibition against Winston-Salem State Friday. Fun vibes inside the Joel. I'll tell you, though, about one player we haven't spent any time talking about from Wake Forest because I didn't know this guy would be a factor this season, but he's very much that. According to Steve Forbes, what Forbes told me Friday night. I'll tell you about that player, and we'll get into this dumb Tar Heel field storming debate next on The Drive. What? 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 This is wrong. You shut up! You're on The Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. One more time. I do want to talk about the field-storming nonsense that we prepared you for the middle of last week, much to the chagrin of Tar Heel fans at the time. Field-storming a reality when North Carolina upset Wake Forest Saturday afternoon. We'll get to that in a bit. Friday night in Winston-Salem, Winston-Salem State faced Wake Forest in an exhibition game. Crazy to think this week is the start of college basketball's regular season. And the newcomers, they were the story Friday night. Guys, we were looking forward to watching, and they came through. It was a fun atmosphere, good showing by Winston-Salem State fans. And there were times where the Rams pushed Wake Forest. Second exhibition they've played after not playing basketball, dating back 
to February 29th of 2020. For Wake, though, it's the newcomers that are going to drive the bus here. Jake LaRavia, we told you about him in the summer. He's going to be the best player on this team. Uh, Absolute stat filler. That's what he is. 16 points, 10 rebounds, 4 assists, 4 blocks, and a steal. That was his stat line on on Friday night. Alondis Williams, Robert, this guy's a lot of fun. He is the transfer uh, from Oklahoma that they've got who just likes attacking the rim. A great slasher. Opening tip. He gets the ball, decides to drive it, and he wanted to end the game on the first play. He missed the dunk, but then got another one later. This guy is constantly wanting to attack the rim like it said something bad to him. That's that's the way that he plays. So he's a lot of fun. Then there's Cameron Hildreth, who was one of the best players in the UK. And Steve Forbes apparently has good connections out that way because he's done pretty well with guys from the UK historically. Brings him in, this redheaded kid. He's a guard. Haven't heard anything about him until the exhibition on Friday, just aside from the fact that he was a pretty good UK player. Didn't think he'd be a guy right out of the gate for the Deeks, but the first player off the bench was Hildreth. So I asked Steve Forbes after the game, after the exhibition, if he felt pretty good about the rotation, and specifically Hildreth being a guy who could be first off the bench despite the fact he has never played in a college basketball game before. I feel pretty good about it. I think, you know, Dream could really start. He's a good player, you know, but it's great to have a guy like that coming off the bench. I think Cameron brings us a ton of energy off the bench defensively. Um, that's pretty pretty special for a freshman. Now, he can score, um, but he's really bought into the team thing. Points, blocks, rebounds, assists. He does a little bit of everything. So Wake Forest is just going to be a really weird-looking team when they take the floor. might be a good team, but you're looking at three or four white guys out there on the floor, including a ginger, and I say that lovingly as a redhead myself. Another that looks like Spicoli, Carter Witt, who's good enough to start as well with his long locks, wearing number 11 now after last year wearing 35. You got a seven-footer in Dallas Walton, who I think... Might be a little bit shorter than that. I know how they might reach a little bit with some of these listings that teams put out. Not a shocker there. But the newcomers, they're the ones that are going to drive the bus for Wake Forest basketball. Okay. This field storming debate is one of the dumbest reoccurring sports topics I can think of, Robert. Every year, we're having this conversation in some context. And it usually goes something like this. We are, fan base, X speaking, too good to storm the field or storm the court after beating Team Y. That's usually the conversation. But last week, I was really confused by it. On social media, I asked the question, and on this show, hey, if North Carolina beats number 9 Wake, are they going to storm the field? This isn't me saying they're going to. It's just me merely asking the question. And North Carolina fans flooded my mentions. Flooded them. All saying no. Absolutely not. There's no way that we 
would dignify Wake Forest by storming the field. When we beat them Saturday at Keenan Stadium, we would never do that. That's what I was told. Then when it happens, I do the old old takes, cold takes, exposed type deal. And what does it do? It makes Tar Heel fans even more mad. How dare you ask the question and suggest that something might happen that ends up happening and then pointing it out after the fact. How dare you? Same song and dance that happened with football. Josh Graham, how dare you not pick the Tar Heels to win the Coastal and to pick the Pitt Panthers instead? You are a hater, Josh Graham. And then I never hear from those folks when I'm right. If I'm wrong on something, oh, I'm going to hear about it for sure. But when I'm right, like I've been about the last two underwhelming Tar Heel basketball seasons, and by the way, when I picked them to win the ACC in 2019, everyone seems to forget that piece. And with football, and with this case, I never hear anything. And then it got stranger. The argument, when that started to go viral, that entire old takes exposed deal, when that went viral, I started hearing that I myself was the crotchety Clint Eastwood in, in Grand Torino old man yelling at kids to get off his lawn, suggesting that the fans should not storm the field, which is not what I was saying at all. I'm pro-fun. Like Mac Brown, I am pro-fun. Storm the field all you like. So I wanted to ask him about that after the game. But as is the case with post-games, really quick, a lot of stuff. People have a lot of jobs to do right after the game. So I sat back, wanted to ask him this morning that question, And that's what I did. This is what Max said. He perfectly handled this when talking about the fans after the game storming the field at Keenan Stadium. I I was really, really proud of our our students um, coming on the field after the game. It was really cool. They're having fun. Uh, They've been that way all year. Uh, They're they're enjoying the games. They're making a difference. Um, And and it, it was no harm. Uh, nobody got hurt, and they, they were just having a blast. And it was really cool, and it, it does affect recruiting. Those recruits were loving it. And our players walked back out and talked to them and, and, and saw them, and, and um, uh, nothing wrong with a, a, a college student having great fun and clean fun, and, and I, I appreciated it so much. And, and now we're 13-5 and five in Kenan, and, and uh, I give the students a lot of credit for um, keeping our guys pumped up and, and uh, moving forward. When's the last time you remember being in a game where that's happened to you? And do you remember it ever happening in Chapel Hill? Um, Josh, I, I, I'm, I'll get my dates confused here and somebody could help me. It happened when we upset Georgia Tech. And I think they were a top 10 team. And the students rushed the field and they tore down the goalpost. They took the goalpost down to uh, uh, Franklin Street. And I got in trouble because the next time we had a home game, I, I said something like, uh, come on, students, let's, let's win, and you tear down the goalpost again. So Chancellor Harden called me in and said, uh, that's very dangerous. Don't be encouraging those students to go tear down goalposts. So, and now I think they're retractable, and they go down real fast. Uh, but, but like I said, I, I, I thought it was fun. What these players are doing is building memories, uh, good and bad, um, for the rest of their lives. And, and as Natron Mean sat in there the other day and and said, yeah, when we played Duke in 90, and then he said the Wake Forest game in 90, and I told the, the players, 
you, you'll be telling these stories when you're, when he's 49. So you're 49 sitting around with your buddies and your best friends will be the guys in this room. You're going to be talking about the Wake Forest upset over a top 10 team uh, where the students stormed the field and how cool it was. And, and again, you, you just can't imagine what it does for recruiting. Well said. Recruits love it. Players love it. It's why I think, Robert, Dabo Sweeney has this right. And Mac Brown is more cl- more cut as a Hall of Fame coach from the cloth of Dabo Sweeney as he is Nick Saban. Because with Dabo, he there's no thought to it. We, we storm the field after every game. It's called meet at the pole. That's what we're going to do. Well, we'll storm the field after every game. North Carolina should start doing that in the state of North Carolina. Just steal it from Dabo and Clemson if you think it helps you in recruiting. Now, I don't know how the ACC feels about it, but I guarantee you Clemson's not being fined. And Jim Phillips said that NC State wasn't fined earlier this year when they stormed the field. A little bit of history, though, Robert. Wake Forest had the field stormed after they lost the game. Aside from it, Clemson, the only time that's ever happened to the Demon Deacons is never. <laughs> I, I was hanging out with uh, Stan Cotton, Larry Sorensen, Dave Gorin, Connor O'Neill after the game in the Wake Forest broadcast booth. And we were all thinking about this question. Has that ever happened before? Stan said, not as long as I've been here. And he's been the voice of the Deeks for the last 25 years or so. Then... They were citing, goodness, I forget who they were citing, but they said somebody who's a lot been around Wake Forest even a lot longer than Stan said that he doesn't ever remember remember it happening. And if he doesn't remember it happening as a Wake Forest historian, then it's probably never happened. So if you have, you want to take some solace, Deacon Van, in Saturday's collapse, know that you are still the only ACC team unbeaten right now in ACC games since that was not a conference game. And for the first time ever, somebody deemed you a good enough win to warrant storming the field, which is what happened with North Carolina, and I think rightfully so. No knock on Tar Heel fans whatsoever. Have fun. Robert, have you ever stormed the court or stormed the field at a game before? Ever? Never. Would you like to? Uh, I mean, sure. It would be fun if it was a team I liked. There have been situations. See, how cool would it be? You're an East Carolina graduate. Three weeks from now, when ECU hosts Cincinnati, if they were the one to upset the Bearcats, you'd think it's the coolest thing ever running on the field doing so. You know, I'll even throw another scenario out there. If it's not against the Bearcats, I don't know if ECU has another home game, but let's say hypothetically they do, and they beat whoever it might be, a bad team in the American Athletic Conference and they beat them at home to clinch bowl eligibility, something that hasn't happened since 2014, I'd be completely cool with that being a field-storming situation. The bar's low. Anybody that says their fan base isn't is too good or their team is too good to warrant storming the field, you're probably wrong on that one. You're probably wrong. North Carolina basketball stormed the court after beating Duke six or seven years ago. You know, and if Carolina basketball is in a place where it's okay to storm the court, then am I ever going to say that North Carolina football is in a place where they're too good to have students storm the field? Of course not. 
It's just the, the dumbest reoccurring sports debate continues to come up. Yeah, he's weird. Yeah, I get it. The Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. Robert, I had the funniest exchange this morning. I was at, and I can't think of a good way to work this in, so I'm just going to throw this out there. I was walking into Camino Bakery this morning to grab a coffee or an iced tea latte. That's what I get. Iced chai tea latte. And whoever was making it for me, I had a Coldplay mask on, pointed out, oh, you like Coldplay? Yeah, I'm going to go see them next April. And she said, boy, I would never go to a concert. Never been to a concert, would never go to a concert. I said, why? She's like, after what's just happened. I'm like, well, what just happened? And I'm expecting her, as soon as I asked that question, I felt stupid. I'm like, oh, she's going to say the pandemic. And that's a, that's a reason people don't want to be around large groups of people. She said, no, I'm worried I'm going to get trampled. I'm going to get trampled. What do you mean? Apparently, like, there's this, Twitter or TikTok that is just trending all over the internet where people are getting trampled at a concert. So I didn't see that one coming. And it feels like nature's healing a little bit. That it's not the pandemic we're worried about. It's now getting trampled at a concert. That's the concern. Graham's grades is where we tell you who met the grade and who didn't, both in the NFL and in the ACC. So let's get to that right now. Every week is a test for your favorite sports teams. We don't need no education. Who passed the test? If one of y'all says some silly ass name. Who dropped the ball? I don't know. Josh Graham has the answers. I think you're very condescending and a know-it-all. Hey, teacher, leave kids alone. Time for Graham's Grades. Attaching an NFL and ACC football team to a letter grade A through F, starting with the very good. A. Tennessee Titans, North Carolina Tar Heels. We'll get to the Tar Heels win against Wake Forest in about 10 minutes, but with Tennessee, Robert, can you think of a win across the NFL that was as good as that one yesterday? Going on the road without Derrick Henry in prime time and beating the L.A. Rams the way that they did, that's about as good as it gets, I think, of the NFL. At least yesterday. Well, yeah, there was a couple of those, that too. Like the Broncos just completely eviscerating the uh, Dallas. Uh, yeah. Jacksonville being able to take down the bu- Buffalo. Like there, I think there were a lot of good blows. I mean, the Browns bouncing back uh, after cutting uh, Odell and, and pretty handedly beating the Bengals. Keep an eye on Cleveland. Next week, they've got the New England Patriots. That might be the most noteworthy game of Week 10. As for North Carolina, that's the win of the year for this team. Top 10 team, you're not going to play anybody nearly as good as Wake Forest the rest of the way. Yes, I know that NC State's still left on the schedule, and even my Pitt Panthers as well coming up this week. Titans, Tar Heel. Those are the A's. B. Robert's Baltimore Ravens and the NC State Wolfpack. Robert, it's a B and not an A because you have to be down by double digits in order to have a double-digit plus point comeback, and that's what happened with Lamar, but it seems the goalposts continue to move for Lamar haters. 
Couldn't win a postseason game. Then he does. Oh, he can't beat the Kansas City Chiefs until he does. Oh, oh, and six, trailing by 10 or more going into this year. Well, now he has three of those this season. What's the next thing that people are hating Lamar for? This is dated back to him being in college at Louisville. He can't throw. Put him at wide receiver. I don't know. You're a Ravens fan, so I'm sure you've seen things that annoyed you. Now that they're circling back to he can't throw now because he had a couple oh. ducks and uh, his pocket was almost non-existent. But he can't throw now, even though he, he threw for like 260 yards yesterday and three touchdowns. Good win for the Ravens, but I would have preferred they scored a touchdown personally. Oh, would you? I, I, I didn't hear you saying that as uh, they were playing in <laughs> overtime. They're about to kick the field goal, and Josh is like, you know, I think you should run a fake here and just yeah, li- just, just leave no doubt. Yeah, that's what they should do. It's, it's totally not because I had Baltimore minus six. That's not what it had to do with at all. NC State, they were on the road at Florida State. This is not an A when otherwise it would have been because an hour before kick, NC State gets a massive break in that 20 to 25 Seminoles were out, not due to COVID, due to the flu, the actual flu. In 2021, the flu is taking out a fourth of your football team. That's what happened here, including the starting quarterback, Jordan Travis. So they got the win, and now the pack's getting set for Wake Forest Saturday at 730. C. The Kansas City Chiefs and Pitt Panthers. KC, it's a C, Robert, because they won the game. You beat Green Bay, but Green Bay didn't have Aaron Rodgers at quarterback. It was Jordan Love, and Jordan Love's mom had the worst seats in the house for some reason. Don't know why. But uh, KC, they won the game. It's just nobody felt good about the way Kansas City played at all. It was 13-7. to They won the game. So it's a C. As for Pittsburgh, they got back in the win column. They covered against Duke, but there was a lot of weirdness in between. You gave up 29 points to a team that has scored 14 points combined in the previous two games. And actually, I take that back. Seven points combined in the previous two games, and that was against reserves. It's a road win. It's an ACC win nonetheless, but it just wasn't. It was There was a lot of weirdness in there. D. The Carolina Panthers and the Wake Forest Demon Deacons. Carolina, defense was great again. This is really the recipe we should have expected. Carolina's offense was dreadful, worthy of a deep performance. Wake Forest, they blew a lead just like they did last year in Chapel Hill. Can't make it an F because North Carolina's not a bad football team. They have a plus 500 record, and they have Sam Howe at quarterback. Plus Wake Forest in the second half as North Carolina was coming back dealt with injuries like Christian Beal Smith and a couple of corners. Those are D's for me. Bad breaks for the Deeks as well. It's a bad loss because the ACC now can't get a playoff team for the first time ever, and Wake Forest's playoff hopes die too. F. The Buffalo Bills and Virginia Tech Hokies. For Buffalo, they went into the weekend as the highest scoring offense in the league. Then they scored six points against Urban Meyer and Jacksonville. Lost the game. Nine to six, they lost the game. The only offensive performance I saw this weekend that was worse was Virginia Tech only scoring three at BC. Losing by two touchdowns against the team that entered the week. 
as one of the two ACC teams without a conference win. It fallen apart. We were surprised to learn Phil Dracovic started in the game, ended up playing for BC, but didn't look great. The offense was a mess. Virginia Tech, they're in a spot where they're going to fire Justin Fuente. It's only a matter of when that's going to happen. Really bad loss, but it was the red bandana game. We talked about that a little bit during the Five Things at Five on Friday. Had me thinking that BC was going to be very competitive in it. But they won on the field and won by two touchdowns, which is a bad look for the Hokies. That's been Graham's grades for this week. Robert, circling back to Stumble Stillskins, we had a great time yesterday there. There were, I, what I love about that place and what I love about sports bars in general, what I missed during the pandemic largely, is you just see a great collection of people of all different types. You have the ones that frequent the bar. You have people that had never been there before. You had folks that are just there for the food and don't really care about the fact that there's football going on. You have fans of all creeds there. We saw a Vikings fan. We saw Cowboys and Browns. There are Patriot fans there. Once upon a time, Robert, someone got offended when they walked in and you said he looked like Brett Favre. But he did. That dude looked just like Brett Favre. Eventually he acknowledged it, but then he... What was the reaction he initially gave you when he just walked by and said, Hey, what's up, Brett Favre? No, I said, said, I said hey, has anybody ever told you you look like Brett Favre? Oh, and he just right, goes like, did. ugh, and like keeps going. And I, and I was like, I think he's a good-looking dude. Like, I didn't mean anything by it. But he came and talked to me, and apparently uh, he gets that a lot. And the girl that he's dating uh, sent him a picture like of him and Brett Favre side-by-side side and was like, you have to be Brett Favre for Halloween. So his girlfriend bought him a Brett Favre jersey and made him be Brett Favre, and he's like, I'm just tired of hearing it. I was like, man, it could be worse. You could be Brett Favre, you know, and not be able to go back to Green Bay. Nobody likes your steakhouse. Everybody leaves you bad Yelp reviews. I'm here to beat the Dolphins, you dumbass. That's my favorite Brett Favre line. That might be his only movie appearance. I don't know if Brett Favre was in another movie. There's something about Mary. But that was just a really funny thing that you had to say to a stranger. Enjoyed that. I think it's a good thing if you look like Brett Favre. There are, there are worse people you could look like. Try Ron Weasley or Kyle Singler. I get that from time to time. In an hour, Greensboro Mayor Nancy Vaughn's going to join us to keep us updated on the latest with the ACC headquarters issue. She just tweeted out that she's going to be on the show. I'm sure it's a topic that's on everybody's mind, is what she said on her social media page. I am really convinced Wake's collapse on Saturday might linger. It might completely ruin this magical season that they've had. I'll make the case for that next on The Drive.